This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, we talk to Jesse Miller from Mediated Reality about kids, how to talk to kids, and how to make kids comfortable about what happens on the internet, creating a safe space around it, opening up the dialogue. We're inspired by the conversation around Instagram for kids that's being batted about. Boredom was on the shift, not because the shift was boring, but because Greg Fish chats about how boredom is pushing people towards dangerous conspiracy theories. So Christopher Gilbert is live in Tokyo. That's where he lives, giving us some insight around the Olympics, not necessarily inside the Olympics. For example, uh, Tokyo posted its highest COVID rate yet through the entire pandemic just yesterday. Welcome to the International Dispatch from our world citizen. Live from Japan, New Zealand's Chris Gilbert. Sir Christopher Gilbert is here. He is in Tokyo. If you don't know Chris, Chris used to be part of the uh, shift crew here moved away. He's from New Zealand, came to Canada. I actually went to Japan first, then came to Canada, and I was gone back to Japan, lives in Tokyo. So how about some perspective that's Olympic perspective that isn't like the same old, same old, uh, you know, inside the bubble, here's what's going on type stuff. Uh, Sir Christopher has uh, the ability to just go anywhere outside the bubble. How are you doing, buddy? Yeah, I'm good. Who wants to live inside a bubble? That sounds dumb. I want to live my life freely. I want to be able to stretch my arms. I want to be able to, you know, frolic. I want to frolic. You can't frolic in a bubble. And mm. uh, the bubble sucks. So, yeah, life outside the bubble, though, is somewhat terrifying because in the bubble, there are a couple of hundred COVID cases. Outside the bubble, uh, today in Tokyo, we recorded, I think, uh, 3,177, which is uh, Tokyo's highest ever single-day tally. Um, and it's going up by about 300 a day. Um, and that news broke about 20 minutes ago. I shared it on a group chat I have with a couple of friends, and uh, I feel like one of them summed it up really perfectly when they said, WTF do we do? And, um, yeah, I think that's how we're all feeling. What do we do? No idea. Maybe you have some ideas, Shane. Hmm. Well, I was going to ask if you had uh, expanded your new hobby of stalking uh, women's softball teams or soccer teams or whatever you were stalking last week. So does that mean you're going to stick around inside and and, um, and do all of those those inside things, or do you keep living your life, Chris? That's a lot of this. I mean, that, those numbers, by the way, are for the city of Tokyo, not for Japan. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because uh, those numbers as well, like a small handful of, of them are over 65, So, which means mm. that the vaccine is working because most of the over 65s are vaccinated. The vast, vast, vast majority of them are in their 20s. And there was a poll done uh, of people in their 20s at the moment, uh, sorry, recently, and everyone's saying, well, you know, like, i just going to keep my living sick. No one else is getting sick. I don't think it's really that much of a big deal. So I don't see why I can't just, you know, keep partying and drinking and stuff. Um, so, yeah, and I think the governor of Tokyo has reacted, uh, Koike, she's reacted to that by pretty much saying, um, instead of being like, oh, these young party goers, how dare they? She's been saying, well, you know, 20 somethings, obviously we're not doing a good enough job of vaccinating them. Let's hurry up the vaccinations there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I had my birthday yesterday and, uh, my partner threw me a, a small birthday party, which was, a, was my first ever surprise party. And I was with just a couple of friends who are inside, um, you know, I guess our bubble. 
and uh, we're still living that way, you know, like um, we wouldn't invite any more friends over because it's just, you don't want to get sick. We've got, we've got shot two coming up next week and you don't want to blow it now. So yeah, pretty much keeping our head down, Shane. Well, you ruined the happy birthday that was coming up next. Way to go. You ruined your own happy birthday surprise. Um, I'm, happy I'm birthday, not one to do that. Thank you. I'm not one to do that. Like I never, I, but some people, you know, as soon as you see them, they're like, Hey, how you doing? It's my birthday. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not one of those people. I'm, I'm one of the ones that you know, I keep it to myself usually, but apart from when I'm telling um, the entire country of Canada on the radio. So yeah, yeah. there you go. Yeah. It, sound, it really sounds like you keep it to yourself. <laughs> by the way, uh, it's my birthday. By the way. It's my birthday. It's my birthday. It's my birthday. Um, um, so well, happy birthday, buddy. So, yeah. It is, uh, it is important. We're grateful Thank that you. your, Thank your you. mom yeah, had no. you and stuff. Okay. Well, yeah, we're not going to um, go too far down that road, but I, I'm grateful as well. Well, I, I, I make so many comments about Ryan being conceived in a nightclub that I was DJing at. So, uh, we don't need to go there. Um, what? so Ryan's parents, let me tell you this story. Because we love telling yeah. Ryan loves this story. So Ryan's parents met in Red Deer, Alberta. And that same season of life was a time when I was DJing in Red Deer, Alberta. And I was going to Red Deer College and I was DJing in the nightclubs around there. So, um, based on, you know, when they met and all those things, we're pretty sure that, uh, they would party at one of the bars I was DJing at. And, um, and so I've, uh, created this story that he was, uh, conceived in the bar while I DJed. Oh, I see. So it's, it's based on nothing. It's just, it's something that you like to just pretend happened. It is based on the fact that Shane did indeed DJ at the time my parents were partying at that club. However, I, the timeline of my birth does not check out with the story. But I'm just going to let Shane go with it because I know how much. Oh, you you think I haven't done the math? I've done a <laughs> lot of math. This is the most amount of math I've done since high school. <laughs> just figuring it out. <laughs> okay, how, so I was um, born on minus fun. one, did, two, did, three. Mm-hmm. Did I have a guest list? Like, can you trace back who, who was there on, on what night? Because there was no internet then. Well, no. And I know if. If there was some pretty wicked records like there are today with the DJ sets, I could actually just search my software, which we didn't have back then, and I could actually just search the date, and I could be like, well, actually, Ryan, around, you know, 12.45 in the morning, late at night, here's what I was playing. So I could even break it down to songs if I wanted to. This would make an interesting story if if you were to trace it back. Like, let's see if um, this... um this radio host and this radio producer have some kind of weird Darth Vader, Luke Skywalker thing going on, you know, like mm-hmm. their history is kind of like, not literally in terms of father and son, but the sort of like, you know, like, you know, like kind of entwined, their stories are entwined and it all goes back to one night at a club in Red Deer, Alberta, you know, mm-hmm. that'd be interesting. I think you should, I think mm-hmm. you should find out for real. Well, it is, it is funny because the same similar storyline stretches to Brennan Kelly, who, uh, used to come and party at the cottage when I DJed at the cottage in Port Alusi, uh, St. Catharines, Ontario. Used yeah. to come and party on, on the nights when I DJed there too. So it oh, does yeah. actually cross over a couple of times. I mean, and go, anytime I went to the cottage, I was like beyond inebriated. This was his early 20s. So I was likely just start like spinning in circles on the dance floor with Shane <laughs> DJing away. Where, where was. 
where was the cottage? Is it Port Falusi? Port Deluzi. Port Deluzi. Yeah. Where, where is it? Is yeah. it Alberta? Are you uh, Ontario. No, I'm from Ontario. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's in the Niagara Peninsula, St. Catharines. It's Port Dalhousie is how we would say it in Western Canada, but when you live there, they call it Port Deluzi, and um, all one word, Port Deluzi. And uh, yes, this, it used to be this thing. I don't, I don't even think it's still there. It used to be this uh, small little pub, like a hundred people it would fit, but the patio fit a couple thousand, and so it was only open in the summer. But it was a good time. A lot of That's people really listening cool. in Southern I, Ontario. I like the there. idea, yeah, mm-hmm. of, a, of a really small venue with a massive patio. That sounds mm-hmm. awesome to me. That, that's that's a very Canadian thing, I find, because, you know, you've got so much space uh, in Canada <laughs> that, you know, you have these massive patios and then, like, just a tiny bar in the closet at the back, you know. Something that I really enjoyed when I was traveling around was the big patio life. I miss the patio life. I'm seeing all my friends on the patios in, in BC and stuff, and we, we, don't have, we don't have patios here. We don't even have bars anymore, you know. I don't want to get too down in the dumps about it, but it's, it's, it's pretty hot here at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's not. It's hard, Shane. I'm it struggling a bit. You do. Yeah. You sound disappointed. Well, I mean, okay. So there's a lot of COVID numbers in Tokyo, in Japan in particular, and uh, and uh, there's a lot going on. But there you are. You're surrounded by yeah. this largest event, uh, sporting event. But I think, like how you described it last week, when you said this is a very large sporting event, but it's not the Olympics. It's not carrying the same spirit for the locals who put it together and paid yeah. for it. So, uh, but there are some impressive things that have been going on, Chris. So tell us what you're seeing and what you love. Yeah, and I, I will rephrase that a little bit. I do think it's not the Olympics as we know it, but, um, I mean, first of all, how bleak was the opening ceremony? Because we haven't talked since then. But the mm-hmm. first half of the opening ceremony, I was like, what are you doing? And it's like, they, they, I think they were like, well, we want to take a moment of silence for you know people who have you know, suffered from COVID-19 or whatever. And it's like, don't bring it up. Don't talk about COVID-19 in the opening ceremony. You don't have to talk about it. Just be happy. Do a show. Do a production. You know, so I was kind of an, kind of frustrated at that. But since then, um, the road race, the cycling road race, it was really, really heartwarming, I thought, to see so many locals out. Uh, mm-hmm. If you watched any of the cycling road race, which went all the way from Tokyo around Mount Fuji, um, there were heaps of people out on the streets. My, one of my friends cycled all the way out to Fuji himself to watch it. And it was really nice to see the, the locals have some kind of you know ability to go almost go and, and touch touch the games, so to speak. You know, um, also so 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 cool um, in the skateboarding. Thirteen uh, year old Momiji Nishia uh, winning, I think, the street style skateboarding. Uh, Yuto, Yuto uh, Horigomi also winning uh, gold for Japan in the skateboarding. The first time they've been held in the Olympics, and. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, Tokyo is not ex- exactly a very um, skateboard-friendly city. You're not really mm-hmm. allowed to, you know, just go and grind rails and stuff because there's um, a million people walking towards you at any moment, usually. Um, so it, it's a hard place to skateboard, but there are, you know, dedicated venues and skate parks and stuff where these people practice. And Tokyo is actually very, very good at um, board sports. Uh, I think his name is Ayumu Hirano. I might get uh you know like corrected on that but uh he as a snowboarder who's won silver at the last two winter olympics uh so board sports are really big here so it's it's cool to see uh, i think um a 13 year old girl win a gold medal at an olympic games i think mm-hmm. that's that's so cool so i i like i like that one in particular um how about the ball the uh was it softball is huge in japan or was it it's baseball baseball is huge here 
like huge here. Baseball, I would say, if, if there was to be a national sport, I would say it's probably baseball. Yeah. Hmm. Really? Huh? Yeah. And they're it, killing it. it. It's interesting. Yeah, they're killing it, and 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 uh, it's interesting because they have the um, the national tournament, which is kind of like our, our what is it, the MLB in America, the the the, major, mm-hmm. the professional tournament. They have that here, but like the big big competition here, which the whole country watches, is high school baseball. Um, there's a competition uh, which runs every year where um, I think the best high school teams and the whole country get together. It's all very military, in fact, because the kids all have to shave their heads. So you're watching hmm. like, you know, like these, it, you could be watching something from like the, the 1930s and the 1940s from the Imperial Japan era almost because of the, the way it looks. It looks so classic and dated. Um, you know, like these like 17 year old kids with all shaved heads out there playing baseball. Um, but, you know, baseball is, is massive here. So they're doing really well. Also, Japan did really well in the judo. Uh, the really cool story is the siblings, uh, Hifumi and Uta Abe. Um, brother and sister they both got gold in the judo so i i do think that as these stories start to come out that like just those classic olympic moments you know a 13 year old girl winning skateboarding siblings winning um and the judo and and you know people being able to go and see the cycling and stuff there is a little bit of a softening in the attitude now um towards the olympics i would like to kind of uh, i think i've taken a turn a little bit and think that um People love the sports and uh, people love the camaraderie and, and uh, people love, you know, the uniformity and, 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 uh, and it, people, you know, doing their absolute hardest, you know, to like when like the Japanese love that stuff. So the mm-hmm. attitude towards the Olympics is softened in that respect. But politically, I think there's still the attitude that this is not the time. This is the wrong time. The government is distracted. The COVID cases are going up. So. But there is some good stuff to come out of the Olympics, definitely, to this point. All right. Uh, tell us the story about the reporter. About the what, sorry? The reporter? Yeah. Oh, the Canadian reporter? Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So I came across <laughs> I came across this story. So I don't know if you guys – do you guys know much about um, combinis or 7-Elevens and, and convenience stores in Japan? I do not. I just know they're way cooler than they are pretty much anywhere else in the world. Yeah, so like a Seven Eleven here is um, it is the height of convenience. You can pick up your Amazon deliveries here. You can pick off con- uh, print off concert tickets. You can um, the food here. You can buy like a meal, like a like they've got two or three refrigerators full of uh, like freshly made meals which are refrigerated, like actually like decent quality, like they taste good. You actually want to eat the chicken at the Seven Eleven and like you know the, the rotisserie chicken or the fried chicken or whatever they have because it's, you're not going to get salmonella. It's actually quite delicious. So. 7-Elevens and uh, convenience stores in general in Japan are exceedingly good quality. Um, there's a reporter, though, called, I, I, I'm sorry if I get the name wrong, but it is, I think it's Devin, Devin Heru, 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 Devin Heru, maybe. And he's a Canadian reporter. He's over in Japan, and he has just absolutely fallen in love with the 7-Eleven in his hotel. Um, almost to a worrying extent. I'll read out some of his tweets. He said, um, 7-Eleven at the hotel. I have a feeling I'll be spending a lot of time and a lot of money here. And then he posts a video of Ice Coffee Seven, uh, Ice Coffee Heaven at the 7-Eleven. Then he says, next tweet, uh, very friendly locals helping with my first coffee at the Tokyo 2020 inside the 7-Eleven. Then he goes, next tweet, 7-Eleven latte for the win. This is really good. Another tweet, 
uh, with um, some nice sunlight in the Seven Eleven. Got the golden sunlit gates with the Seven Eleven for morning coffee. Also got an iced coffee, easy to chug, and it's a chugging coffee kind of morning. Next tweet: Went back to the Seven Eleven for the Wonder Morning Coffee Shot and Super Protein Bar. Next tweet: Tonight's dinner, a Seven Eleven special. Especially the egg salad sandwiches are quite exquisite. So he loves the Seven Eleven. There's more desserts. It goes on and on, but then it kind of gets a little worrying because、um, I think he just watched the opening ceremony and he tweeted, "What are the chances my Seven Eleven is open at two a.m.? I'm really craving those edamame chips and an egg salad sandwich right now." Ah, <laughs>、uh, are you there, Chris? Did we lose you? Seven <laughs> Eleven. Oh, we lost you there for one second. There, Chris.、Um, next tweet. At, 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 oh, sorry. Yeah,、We're、my, my connection is cutting out. But the the last one was this. Okay, cool.、Um, I'm on a bus. The bus is to go back to the international broadcast center to get on another bus to go to the hotel to hopefully enter my beloved Seven、um, Eleven. Next tweet at two a.m. in Tokyo. I just got off the bus. I'm walking to the Seven Eleven. Those golden gates better be open. It goes on and on and in pages.、Uh, this Canadian reporter loves the Seven Eleven, and I'm a little bit worried about him, Shane. Well, he sounds happy. That's that's probably a good thing.、Um, I like the story. I like where it goes. So there's been all kinds of other crazy things that have happened there too. Can you tell us about the、um, the power pole and the story of the、oh, power、yeah. pole in Japan? Yeah, sure. So、um, the headline for this story is Pooch P is blamed for traffic light poles collapse in central Japan.、Um, this is a place I was a couple of weeks ago. Actually,、uh, police have concluded that dog urine. Was likely the culprit behind the collapse of a traffic light pole, which was found snapped from its base on February twenty third after as I、uh, in February after twenty three years of use, despite its expected fifty year lifespan. There you go. According to Mie、uh, Prefectural Police, the traffic light was installed at a crossroad、um, in nineteen ninety seven. It was found at a nearby parking lot on the morning of February eighteenth. No one was injured.、Uh, the forensic science laboratory. Which investigated the felling of this, you know, pole, found that forty times the concentration of forty、uh, forty times. Oh, sorry, this this is translated from Japanese, so the English is a little bit weird. But forty times the concentration of urea at the bottom of the post compared with other traffic light poles that have been installed around the same period. Police believe it's highly possible that the urea and salt in dog urine has eroded the six point five meter tall pole. Site. This site is part of a popular route for people walking their dogs, and the pole has been replaced.、Um, but maybe、uh, for all the beloved、uh, good boys out on walks,、uh, maybe try and alternate pee on because twenty-three、uh, years later,、um, you know your dog's pee could, you know, corrode away that power pole. It's going to snap and fall on your favorite Timmy hose or something. I've、uh, I've never heard that before. You hear a lot of things as dog owners, right? Like,、yeah, don't let a female female dog pee on the grass; it kills the grass. All those things. But I I that, I've never. That's a lot of pee on the pole. That's the one smelly pole. That's I guess that's what that really boils down to. How smelly is the pole? Yeah, that's what we all need to know.、Um, it's interesting. I like carry around the little spray bottle with them as well. So when their doggy does a pee, they they spray the little area so、um, so it's all clean and stuff. So, but yeah,、mm. I mean, I, I I'm gonna go around just keeping an eye on power poles around me now to make sure there's no wet marks on them because I, I don't want to die. 
<laughs> That's a terrible way to die. Peepholes. Not good. Not good at all. Um, Chris, we're going to leave it there just because the uh, it's breaking up just a little bit there, and it's uh, we'll just uh, we'll, we'll we'll let the internet yeah. fate gods leave it for what it is. Um, uh, thank you very much, brother, and thank you for all of your insights of what's going on here uh, in and around uh, the Olympics. So as things do unroll, please do yeah. keep us in the loop. Appreciate that, buddy. Yeah, thank you, and uh, sorry about the bad connection this week. We'll try again next time. This is the Shift Podcast. There are many different places we can take this conversation. Frankly, there are many different places we can take any conversation with Jesse Miller. Um, mediated reality and social media teacher guy. That's basically the way I describe Jesse. What does Jesse do? Jesse goes and not only does he teach people socials, but he actually goes into businesses and helps them understand the impact of behavior, how to be effective and all those things. Jesse Miller, how are you? I'm fantastic. It's a warm day on the West Coast, but uh, it's always great to talk to you, Shane. Thanks, buddy. Um, 44 attorneys general down in the States beg Facebook to leave the kids alone is the headline from Gizmodo. They've officially uh, filed their concerns about Instagram for kids. How happy are you about that? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually quite happy with, you know, this concern that the kids need a bit more attention and they're using of social media. But this isn't a new conversation. The reality of it is, is that since the inception of the Internet, there's been a concern about what about the children. Um, so obviously, in certain ways, Facebook, who owns Instagram, have taken a step here to uh, address the issues that exist. But the question is, is that what are the issues? And, and there are so many ranging issues that Facebook as a whole has sometimes been proactive on, sometimes reactive. But the reality of it is, is that kids online are as only as safe as their actual behaviors and interactions and the supports they have at home. So the reality of it is, is that there are things that any company can do on social media to to limit access for individuals. The question is what's necessary and then how many limits are going to be acceptable. There is currently a messenger for kids that parents can monitor and see all the calls and whatnot out there is this just a rebrand of the same sort of thing do you think you know what anything that's for kids is is hated by kids online youtube for kids facebook for kids messenger for kids it kind of creates this uh, sterilized version uh, that make, actually usually makes parents feel comfortable, but the kids themselves, you know, if they use it, it, it it's something that is arbitrary because they're going to find other ways of communicating online. And usually the kids are, you know, 20 steps ahead of their parents. But the reality of it is, is that the bigger concern obviously is about predatory behaviors and predation exists everywhere online, you know, whether it's, you know, tax scams, whether it's phishing emails. And so digital literacy as a whole is, is exactly what we need. Now, obviously in schools, you know, digital literacy is get introduced, whether it's the form of internet safety, which I'm a huge advocate that we migrate away from because usually the shock and awe of internet safety is about, you know, there's bad things online, don't go on the internet. And kids live in a digital world. They do need to be prepared for some of the things that they're going to be facing as they age online, whether it be bullying, whether it be online dating as they get into that older teenage, you know, university out of high school age. And at the same time, just the, the nuance of what it means to have dialogue with people who aren't friendly. I mean, you know, most kids online participate in group chats with their friends or whether it's from sports programs or from school. But the reality of it is they eventually do bump into people who are just horrible online. And why not make the home the safest environment to talk about it? So when parents rest their laurels on these 
platforms that are safer, um, you know, they sometimes then actually don't pay much attention to what their kids do online because they believe that their kids using a platform that's safe. And without age gating, nothing is safe online. Well, so, I mean, you or I could go say that we're 12 years old and sign up and use our own. We could say our, we're our own child, couldn't we? Totally. I, I mean, that thing is, is that like I have a number of family accounts set up and they're all age specific. And now you get these parents who are like, well, if I make my kid older, then no predator is going to go after them. And then they get upset when all the advertisements that are sent to their kid are out of the age range. Anytime that we try and kind of you know, trick the internet, the internet catches up with the behaviors and the searches. So I've always used this example and saying, yeah, okay, parents, you felt comfortable that you made your kid's social media profile four or five years older. But at the end of the day, even if you look at the friends list, what kind of 17 year old has 500 friends who are in middle school? I mean, the reality of that, that's a red flag from a mile away. So in that, when you create these profiles, when you set things up for your kids, you know, trying to protect them from the perils of the Internet is not as important as giving them tools to understand how to talk about the Internet. So if a kid comes and says, hey, you know what, I was online and somebody was making me feel uncomfortable, somebody was messaging, and yeah, it was on Facebook Messenger for kids or YouTube for kids, doesn't mean that it's a safer environment. It just means that there has to be a little bit more oversight about how you set your kids up for success, no matter the environment. How do we have that conversation, Jesse? Well, a healthy dialogue starts with how was your day in, in any environment with families? You know, talk about the school thing. Talk about the sports thing. How was your day online? Not a lot of parents do that. They don't introduce a conversation talking about the Internet as an environment where their kids have interactions and they engage with individuals. So the reality of it is, is that parents need to understand that the Internet might be seen as this entertainment venue or a waste of time venue or the video game space. But the reality of it is, is that your kid's playing a video game potentially against some random stranger who lives you know, 3,000 kilometers away. If your kid had a negative experience with that person, whether they be in their peer group or not, the ability to have that conversation at dinner table and say, what, they use those words? I can't believe they would treat you that way. How do we make this a safer place for you to participate? Those dialogues there mean that your kid knows there's a trusted adult they can rely on. When kids don't see a trusted adult, they see a reactionary adult who takes away the iPad, takes away the video game and says, I know this thing would happen to all these crazy people online. All they do then is next time they're bumped into it, they recognize that you're going to take away the iPad don't be that person who makes the kid out to be the villain. The kid's coming forward with good information, work together as a family the same way you would if a car drove up and your kid said, no, nah, I'm not getting in that car for a ride. Thanks. You don't know my parents. And they wrote down the license plate. That kid would get a high five and a celebration. That kid gets rewarded. The other kid who turns around gets the iPad taken away. It's unfortunate that parents do that, but that unfortunately then pushes your kid into a darker spot online. I did I ever tell you the time that that happened to my daughter where there was a guy popped up on her chat and his his justification, if you will, um, you know, in his conversation with him was, you know, let's make friends and see where Jesus wants us to go. Oh, and uh, I was like, wow, that's bold to me. Um, yeah. And, and but, uh, you know, so that, I confronted and sent messages and did the filings. But I mean, you never know what really comes of it. No, and I mean, that behavior would exist in a different space as well, right? That could exist in youth group. That could exist in, in, a, in a camp that's religious-based, right? The reality of it is, is that that's predation. Now, there are these instances, like, you know, I've been to schools where they tell me, oh, we had an internet safety uh, presenter come in, and they pretended to be a kid, and then they, like, lured all of our children in, and now we're going to scare them straight. 
And the reality of it is, yeah, sometimes when you show people what they've done online where they thought they can act with impunity, that there is an accountability. We saw that with, uh, you know, the creep catchers, you know, these guys online who pretend to be kids kind of usurping police. But the reality of it is, is that they just got this adrenaline rush thinking that they can be these all-star investigators and they're doing better than the cops, which is absolute garbage because they were interfering with investigations. But when we have parents who think, you know, my kid's going to be online and they're going to do things, your kid most likely came forward to talk to you. And in that, when we think about the way that parents stumble onto these things, whether they're going through text messages or their child, you know, basically says, hey, I've been having a tough time online. There are really healthy ways to talk to your children about interactions online that make them feel uncomfortable. But the second that we put them in that spot that makes them the bad one for going to the website, that's where it'll backfire for any parent. Well, isn't it curious that um, we we sort of create those behaviors and and to be specific about that, when I this guy had popped into my my daughter's, you know, DMs on Instagram, she was like, "Well, I was just nice to him, told him I didn't want to talk to him, right?" She because be nice to adults, right? Respect adults. That's yeah. what we tell our kids. You know, I was like, "Tell this guy to f off." Like, she's like, "Well, Dad, I'm not going to do that, right?" Like, and so she was trying to behave inside the structures that we talk about all all day. To your point about when you create the space that you know, just deal with it. Uh, come and talk to us or whatever. Um, yeah, you don't have to be nice to that guy. Yeah. And this is a note too, like most parents are worried about things like pornography and violent content and language. Uh, you know, for, for my kid in that age range, like I, I'm going to empower my child to use aggressive language when they feel uncomfortable with the situation. But at the same time, I'm also going to empower them to say, you know what, you can leave this person on the back burner because you don't have the responsibility to respond to them. That's not your job. Just because somebody's bombarding you with 10, 15 messages, like, where'd you go? Why aren't we talking anymore? It's not your responsibility to be there for them. And so whether it's a peer or whether it's some random person on the internet, kids need to know that they don't need to be at the beck and call of some random person on the internet at all. Same topic, different perspective. Instagram for kids, gateway drug or not? No, not really. I mean, kids have been watching their parents sipping from uh, the social media spigot for the better part of their lives. You know, we live in a social media world and, uh, you know, for kids, whatever we add in for kids, it seems like we're trying to kind of prepare them for the next step of adulthood. But social media is such a weird space because it's a double-edged sword, but so is the technology. Like when we have parents who buy cell phones for their kids for quote-unquote safety, we also recognize that it's a music machine. It's a uh, you know, m- uh, communications machine with their friends. It's entertainment on the car, car trip. And so when parents say, well, we, when it gets out of hand, we take it away. What do you take away? You take away that safety device that we kind of structured for our kids saying we need this for the purpose of you know keeping you uh, connected to us, or we took it away because, you know, you didn't deserve the birthday gift we got you. It's so arbitrary. So just consider this. When adults, when we drive and we, you know, abuse the motor vehicle rules and expectations, yeah, the government can take our car away and say, guess what, you're being held to account. But when it comes down to it, any form of social media that teaches kids good discourse with some healthy oversight is going to make them better digital citizens. So when we see kids using messenger platforms or even Zoom in our learning environments during COVID, you know, that got them ready for some form of virtual expectation of communication. And so we've seen more kids choosing to be accountable. They'll say things like, hey, you know, when I was in virtual learning during COVID, I turned off my screen when I felt like somebody else was in the background or when I didn't want to be present. Now, Instagram for kids, I mean, most parents who let their kids 
on Instagram, especially if they're underneath the age of 13, are letting them on and fibbing about their age and kind of creating their own gateway drug in that regard. They're like, well, they're only 11. I know it's not against, you know, uh, 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 the rules, but we made them 16 and it's not a big deal because I follow them. The reality is kids can make anything. There's no real gating on this. And so if we really want to make the Internet safer for kids, we would do things like, hey, put your credit card down. Parents, back up the account and say, no, I verify that my child's in this space and I'm actually participating with them, as opposed to let's make a safer, quieter space where only the friends can connect. You can do that without it being, quote unquote, for kids. There are healthy ways of approaching using these platforms for most people if you're willing to take a little bit of time, a little bit of effort and talk about it as a family. What is the biggest thing that's on your mind? I mean, you're a parent. You've got the kids with all of this. I mean, you revolve in this orbit. Um, is there the biggest thing that's on your mind that's concerning as a dad that you look at this? I mean, I mean, you know, you talk about having the conversations and doing those things, which I'm sure you do. Uh, but at the same time, there must be something that keeps you up at night. Well, there's two. One is that, you know, I'm the expert. So I'm seen on TV in the family home. I'm seen doing the conference events. And so uh, I always worry that I become the person you can't talk to because you should know better. And I think I think maybe in any kind of space, like if you have a doctor uh, who talks to their children very frankly about, you know, safer sex options or what it means when you're making choices around alcohol and tobacco. And it's like, well, you know, we've talked about a thousand times because I told you about the kids who come into the ER. The reality being is that sometimes that does backfire because the kid's terrified to disappoint. So for me, it is about having other trusted individuals. And so in that regard, kids, when they feel like either the device is going to be taken away or the parent will not understand what's happening, maybe it is beneficial for kids to have other trusted adults. So that is one thing I set up and make sure there's a trusted family member or trusted family friend who could be relied on by that individual and saying, Hey, can I just send you a text message and, you know, test out something before I talk to parents and that adult, if you are trustworthy, you know, would say, okay, I can give you some advice, but I do think, you know, I should maybe tell your parents about this. And that's one of those things we set up. On the flip side of that, you know, I love the creativity that young people have on social media. You know, I'm loving watching young people on TikTok. I'm watching how they're not only creating, but monetizing what they do. And that's a, it's a lot of really neat stuff there. But the reality of it is, the only thing I'm really concerned about is that, you know, we're not going to have good internet reliance when we get back to school for 2021, 2022. And if what we're seeing right now with the pandemic, we're not really sure where things are going to be. You see certain guarantees from provinces saying kids are going back to the classroom. The one thing we learned for sure during the pandemic when we had to rely on the internet was that not every kid has equitable access to the internet for the purpose of education. And so that's one of those things that we do have to look at. How do we get good tools in the hands of kids who might not have all the devices or who don't have parents who can afford a 5G phone plus the at-home Wi-Fi? And so those, those inequalities, that's where I want to see schools better supported. And the more we get media literacy, the more that we get digital citizenship into kids' heads, especially at a younger age, the better they're going to be to hold not only us, but their next coming generations accountable to being good communicators online. Uh, Jesse Miller, how do I get my kids to stop using Snapchat and start texting like normal humans? Because their data, <laughs> their data usage is through the roof, man. Yeah, you know what? You know what's funny? If we just if we just communicated in Polaroids back in the day, or if we took like thirty-two photos of ourselves with disposable cameras and just waited right. for the end result. Communication has changed, you know, and, and even then texting is arbitrary. Like it's like, you know, somebody gets a text message. They're like, oh, okay, that's easy. But if they get a phone call, they're like, oh my goodness, somebody died. 
communication evolves. And so in that, when we see people choosing different forms of communication, it doesn't mean it's good or bad. It's actually quite interesting. And so for me, when you think about some kids, you're like, oh, those kids, they never speak. Why are they never speaking? Maybe they're just speaking differently, right? And then like I, I mentioned this on your show before, but years ago I met a mom who told me, you know, all the kids were all over for a birthday party and they're all on their phone texting and it's like they don't even talk to each other anymore. It's like they were. They were just talking about you. And that's the best part. It's like you were being awkward and you were standing in front of them and they're all messaging, like, why is your mom standing here? What's she doing? When's she gonna leave? So in that, you know, they communicate very similarly to the way we quote unquote used to just in a very different medium and in a different way that makes it a bit more effective for them. That doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it's different. And if your overage charges are getting crazy, you might need to re-examine what you, uh, what you got as a data plan for, as a family. No way. If there's overage <laughs> charges, dude, it is coming to you. If you're so it. confident in Snapchat, Jesse Miller will take <laughs> care of it. That's for sure. I mean, it's skyrocketing. I just worry that they've created... When we started with cell phones, we learned what minutes cost. And we learned that you could call your friends after 7 p.m. Because that's when you had unlimited evenings. And um, I worry that their usage of... the It's the same thing that my same worry about iCloud storage and Google Drive storage and all these things is that... You know, it's easy for us to say, oh, I can just put it in the cloud and then it's going to be there and that's fine. It will be. But we don't often realize that that is a commitment for the rest of our lives unless we have a different storage medium in order to put it. And um, that's what I worry about is the babies don't often understand the costs associated long term with some of these pieces. But that might be a whole other appointment. (laughs) That could be a whole other appointment. One thing we can do as parents, and this is just a simple thing, we got to carve out time for memory maintenance. And so I think if you think about it, like when there was a a shoebox full of old photos, you know, instead of somebody dying and then you going through it going, oh, who was in that photograph? You know, who are these people? You know, carve out time as a family to really assess, you know, how do you maintain the information, the data that you start to store? And it's almost like if you have too much stuff in a storage locker, or if you got too much stuff Uh, around the house how do you purge and so within that you know going through photo galleries together talking about those events and then you know uploading them to the pharmacy uh, digital and printing them off that's that good balance of uh, of, uh, of of use but also some family time well, Mama used to sit down after the summer vacation or Christmas or whatever and break out the photo book, right, and start peeling back those plastic pages and sticking in the photos so they could be archived. Um, Love it. We as humans absolutely definitely need to do the same. All right, Jesse Miller, Mediated Reality, the man and also the soccer parent who's so kind to share time with us. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. It's the Shift Podcast. Welcome. Welcome. To the world of weird things with Greg Fish. Fishy. How's it going? Welcome back to the program, Greg Fish. It's worldofweirdthings.com if you want to check out his weird blog and podcast and all of those uh, those things. Uh, Fish, are we bored? Yeah, we're bored. Now, there's a little bit more to it, though. So. Come on. Well, uh, let's not make this boring. Let's let, are, let's let's set up a even... little backstory. <laughs> All right, we're let's bored set... about our boredom. Yes, we're bored about our boredom. But let's but let's try and set up a little backstory first. So, uh, the first appearance that I ever made on the show had to was about conspiracy theories, and talking about conspiracy theories and debunking them and dealing with them has kind of been 
just a thing for me for for many years now. Uh, and one of the things that I've always found is that I keep addressing some of the hows, how people get into those theories, how those theories are created, why they're created, how who gets advantage of them. But there's always been kind of a piece missing for me, which is why is it that people really get into them. And and a lot of times people say, well, you know, the world is changing very quickly and there's a lot of people who feel very powerless and frustrated. And, and But that's still part of the story. Why do they take that step into going from, wow, gee, I wish there was something I could do to change the world to, well, obviously the reason why the world is against me is because the satanic alien pedophiles from pizza sex basements are undermining my life like how how does that happen pizza sex basements oh, I, I i had to i had to get as many things in there as i could so That's pretty good uh so really it really came down to a number of studies that kind of give me a little bit of an idea and and after talking with some people who actually deal with conspiracies and conspiracy theorists and profile them it really seems to center around the idea that people are bored out of their minds and they are turning to these very elaborate fantasies because being against something is better than not really having a purpose and feeling like mm. you can't do anything. So if you are if you're just an average Joe who nobody cares about, well what's so great about that? But if you are a digital soldier on a campaign to, uh, you know, unseat the evil cabal that rules the world, and all of a sudden you're important and you matter, and and you have private and you have access to all this knowledge and you're private to all these secrets, and all of a sudden you become important, and and it beats sitting around being bored. Are you suggesting that um, we don't have a sense of purpose? Are you suggesting that? We sit around and uh, sort of wallow around looking for things to be mad at. Are you suggesting that we don't, we actually spend our time walking around this world sharing everything that we don't want, but don't actually share what we do want? Because that's hard. I'm saying that a lot of us do that. Yes. I'm saying that right. the research says that a lot of us very much do that. And and I, there's, there's a lot of things that we can point to. So first and foremost, we can look at, you know, the United States. And so another one of the reasons why I've been, you know, trying to do more and more research into how conspiracies work is because, you know, I live in the country that because of conspiracy theories and because of people's predispositions towards conspiracies has become virtually ungovernable. You know, there's real problems. People offer solutions. And there is a very large part of the pol the political class and the people in power who basically say, no, 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 we can't do that because that's what they would want you to do. And they are evil and they are trying to trick you. Any, mm. you know, we, we can't come around to the idea of there's a virus that's killing people and there's a shot that we can take that will stop that and let us return to normal. And that has become controversial. We have literal fights about this. This is insane. You can't, you know, you can't deal, you can't lead countries like that. You can't deal with a public that behaves this way. You can't have a society this way. So really trying to get to the bottom of why is it that people fall for these conspiracy theories and why they believe them so much is 
really a defining issue these days because and I know that this 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 phrase has been very much overused but you know if you are trying to deal with real problems and you can't get half the people who you need to participate in this to agree that there's a problem and actually like deal with the real world you're never going to be able to solve that problem mm-hmm. so we look at so I mean now we start to look at okay well who are these people who refuse to get on board with reality and we find that Despite the stereotype, there's a lot of conspiracy theories are well-off professionals. They're well-educated. They have above-average incomes. In fact, a lot of the conspiracy theories they fall into and a lot of the conspiracies they fall cover, uh, they, they, um, they fall for are really requiring them to have that disposable income because they're supported by grifters who need money to keep going, who get a lot of money from these people to keep going. And... Um, we we need to then start asking ourselves why are these people who are supposedly doing just fine all of a sudden turn these conspiracy theories and we start and we start looking at what they talk about and a lot of times they're like well you know i felt like uh, i felt like i didn't there wasn't a place for me i didn't know what i wanted to do and one way or another they find something that leads them into these conspiracy theories something that gives them purpose something that gives them a goal and it's really disheartening because it's the facts don't matter. The conspiracy itself doesn't matter. So I can sit here and I can debunk anything you want all day. They don't care. They're going to be on to the next thing. I can try and confront them with facts. They don't care. They're on to the next thing. If, I can, if I'm going to try and talk them out of this conspiracy, I'm now talking them out of a community. I'm talking them out of feeling like they're important and they matter and they have to go back to regular Joe's and they don't want to do that. So it, it, it really undermines a lot of our efforts in traditional, uh, in, in the traditional methods that we use to combat addictions to conspiracy theories. There's, um, there's a thing called the sunk effect, which is really kind of, it's an interesting notion. And it, it just came up to me as you were saying that about people Sunk effect is one of those things where you've invested so much into it. There's no point giving up now, right? Like, yeah, I've oh, already yeah, spent the- three years studying this and I, you know, so, well, I can't quit now. Look at all the time I put in. Well, do you like it? Well, not really, but I just, I can't give up now. And I'm curious about conspiracy theories and the, this notion of boredom leading into that and how much of that would be that, that, that sunk feeling of, wow, well, I've come this far. I can't quit now. Oh, quite a bit. But here's the interesting thing. You could look at it from, well, I've come this far and I've learned all these things about it. But guess what? If you all of a sudden change your mind about it, you can say, oh, well, this is how people get into it. And these are the things that are circulating online. And these things are true. And these things are not. And these things are distortions. And this is how people go. You can become a consultant. You can become other people's way out because you understand the conspiracy. You speak the language. You know, you can actually be very useful and helpful and important and find your purpose in this. And really, what it comes down to is that I'm a big believer in the idea that the meaning of our lives is what we make out of the uh, out of it. Like we decide what makes our lives meaningful and important. Uh, and sometimes we don't know what that is, and we need to do some sort soul searching, and we need to try different hobbies, and we need to try different things, and and talk to different communities. Uh, but when that community basically is, you know, we have these secrets and there's these people who are trying to get you and, and offer you conspiracy theories, you know, obviously a lot of people have felt, have fallen into that. And we need to kind of try and figure out how to give them alternatives, positive alternatives to channel this 
this need for purpose and this need to belonging because it's going to be different from person to person. And when we're talking to people who have, you know, kind of crossed that Rubicon and can turn from like normal people who would go get a beer with and hang out and talk to into these uncontrollable rage monsters who listen to people who can really only be described as cancers on society who are sucking the life and money and mental health out of them we're going to have to bring them back by addressing that need for belonging for showing them that there's a that there's a positive way to do that and again it's going to vary from person to person and we're going to need to we're going to have to spend a long time doing it but this is something we have to do we have to as a society start figuring out how to allocate people's passions and people's talents better uh how to fix a lot of the things that we've done that led people down the wrong roads because you know we look at we look at different polls and we find that a lot of people are very disengaged they're very lonely they're very bored they're very restless and we're not really giving them that much of a grand adventure to go on you know back in the days uh, you know people could be explorers they could start their own businesses from their hobbies uh they they could have hobbies like they had the time and and, and the the latitude to do that and now we've kind of taken that away by essentially focusing people's life on produce, consume, sleep, produce, consume, sleep. And mm-hmm. we're not really giving them something other than everything has to be either super mega meaningful and it'll never live up to the hype or it doesn't really matter because their only goal here is, well, do you have a job? Yeah. Do you make money at the job? Okay. Yes. Great. Fantastic. W- what else do you want? We need mm-hmm. to give some. We need to give people something else as a society, because this this aimlessness that we have created for so much of the population right now is literally killing us. Well, you you've reached the crossroads of two things. This is fun. Um, you've reached the crossroads of what I call the the dog in the window effect, which is my mom said to me once, "Why does the dog go bark in the window?" All the time. I said, because that's the only sense of purpose the dog has is when something walks by the window, I run there, I bark, 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 it goes away. And so that is boredom defined, really. And the other part is the matrix. And so uh, somewhere between a dog, the boredom of the dog barking in the window at anything that walks by and living in the matrix is kind of where we're landing here. I, I really like that. I think that's I think that's great. I mean that that is a fantastic way to describe it because yeah, a, you know, from the standpoint of a dog, because as the junior member of the pack, it's their duty to be the lookout. They're doing. Mm-hmm. They feel like they're doing their job. That they they're found their, their purpose in this. That's but right. you got to give them a new yeah, purpose. Yeah, exactly. So you you have to give people some. You have to give people some interesting insights into things, and that's actually one of the one of the reasons why I like to write about popular science and why I like to talk about some of the like really out there things, like you know, are aliens AI, and are we going to become machines at some point, and you know, what can we? What are the limitations of AI? Because there are so many interesting problems that we could tackle. There's so many things that we could do. If we really kind of set our minds to, as a society, we want to pursue this. We want to have more scientists researching this really cool stuff. We want to have more engineers working on this. We want to do more curiosity and more exploration. And then what we're going to do is we're going to figure out all what kind of cool inventions we can sell or we can turn into everyday things that would really benefit people and make billions, if not trillions of dollars 
on all the spin-offs that we can create. Because for dollar for dollar, money spent on science and research and exploration gives you so much more back. And it makes people feel so much more fulfilled when they're in these fields. You know, talk to any postdoc, talk to any academic. A lot of them are grossly underpaid, but they would never do anything else because it really gives them that sense of purpose. Um, and this is not to say that, you know, just give people a sense of purpose and shortchange them. But dear God, don't do that. But, you know, if we really turn our attention to the fact that we the words knowledge economy has really been overused to say, OK, you now work in an office instead of a factory. But we need to retool our economies to generate knowledge. That's really what that's meant. And if we really follow through on the transitions that we've planned and really get people excited and, and really try and figure out what is it that they're good at? What is it that they want to do? And make sure that we can put them in those roles and give them more control over their careers, over their lives, um, over defining their their purpose in life. I think we're going to see a huge positive effect because people are not going to need those conspiracy void fills. Mm-hmm. And as long as we're so focused on doing fact checks and, and debunkings, we're not getting to the meat of the issue. We just, we just really aren't. It's, it's just a gigantic waste of everyone's time. We need to, we need to really go for the juggler here and say, how do we make this a better world? How do we make this a better place? And the nice part about it is that there are thousands of people who have, uh, a lot of expertise in many different areas, and they have many different wonderful plans for how to make the world better, and we can all debate them and select the best ones and go for them. We don't have to sit there and create everything from scratch. So it, it, that's really what that's really what I'm talking about. We, we need to make the world better because our alternative right now is really, really, really crappy. Our alternative is this forever. So just consider the fact that one of the biggest draws right now are like with these really far right anti everything conspiracies because they give people very handy villains. But the outcome is they're mostly ran by people who just want your money. And really, if you ascribe to those, what you're buying into is you're buying into this kind of a spot on this hamster wheel of hate. And you're buying the right to have your credit card charged forever by someone who makes you mad. So you give them more money to find new enemies, to find new conspiracies, to always be scared, to always be angry, to always feel like someone's watching you, to always be paranoid. And what kind of an existence is that? That's well, not better. Well, there's a, there's a part of the formula of tyranny is uh, an enemy within and a clearly defined enemy in unrest. So, I mean, that that is one of the, the biggest things that, that happens with tyranny and um and narcissism connects directly to that is that you have to have a clear and defined enemy there has to be unrest within and you have to uh have the solution for the problem the question is did you create the problem in order to provide the solution or did the problem exist and you have the solution um and that would be in government uh in dictatorships and all those things for years and years and years so you're drawing an awful lot of parallels to that let me ask you this uh this question as a guy who grew up in eastern ukraine and experienced communism firsthand the way you're talking about this today, and this is way too big of a question to ask, but I'm really curious, Greg, because this is this is how you grew up, is the way you're talking about this, about the wake up, consume, go to bed, right? Fulfill your role, go to bed. I always joke about it. Part of me is not joking that 
we have essentially slipped into what they call democracy because we get to vote, but a society that is built on one thing and one thing only. It's like a communist society, except you get to choose your job because you are the worker bee and you will always be the worker bee because the system is designed to keep you as the worker bee. But by the way, except in this society, if you want to move from Toronto to Winnipeg, you can do it at your own free will as long as you keep working and paying taxes. In in a way, I think that's definitely a valid comparison. In the other way, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So in, in the communist structure, it wasn't really communist in the way that, you know, the, that, that people talk about, because a lot of in the West, there's a lot of caricatures of what Soviet communism was. In reality, mm -hmm. what it was, it was just totalitarianism. The government essentially turns the citizenry into their slaves and they tell them what, and they basically tell them, these are the things that we need and you need to figure it out. Otherwise we'll punish you in the society that we live, it's there's definitely the parallels of, you know, you're the worker bee, but the purpose is different. You're the worker bee for whoever can get the most out of you. So I, I would say that the, the social structures are very different, but there's definitely patterns that rhyme um, that in, in, in our society, in like a hyper-capitalist society, nobody cares about what you want to do. You're just supposed to fulfill a role. In a totalitarian mm -hmm. society, nobody cares about what you want to do. You have to fulfill a role. But the actual implementation is very, very different. And I think we need to keep that, we need to keep that very clear. Um, I think that the, the difference is we're slipping into a very utilitarian society where we have made it extremely obvious that we do not care about people and what happens to them. And it's just who is, it's just, so I always keep coming back to during the pandemic, we had all these pundits and we had all these politicians, politicians essentially tell us that if people have to die in order for the system to go on as it is, then people have to die. You know, that's just that's just the sacrifice that, that we're going to be willing to willing to make. And I think that mm -hmm. it broke a lot of people. I, I really do. I think there's a lot of people who may have not been like really into like all these anti-vax conspiracy theories and all the pandemic stuff and, and, and QAnon and whatever. But they heard the people who they respect, the people who are in power, the people who are in church and the people who, who they voted tell them that their lives are meaningless, that if they die, they die. Who cares? I think a lot of it, I think it broke a lot of people and I and I don't want to draw like the big parallel between how I grew up and and what we're seeing today because I think there's just so many nuances in there and we can just keep going and going about this but I think there's there's that there's that core of feeling like you don't matter and trying to fill that void with something else and we really and that and when I when I talk about making people feel like they matter that also includes Kicking out politicians who don't think that you matter, kicking out politicians who can't tell you, okay, how, he, this is how we're going to figure out how to make people happy, how we're going to make people feel like they're participating in society. Well, I, uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Unfortunately, a conversation for maybe next time is, um, do you really actually get a vote? Is it democracy in a party-based system where your constituents aren't represented um, and the party goes on no matter who you kick out. So, and the job in the party is to toe the line. So it doesn't matter who you kick out. You got to get rid of the party. And that's easier than said 
Van Don. Greg Fish, worldofweirdthings.com. It's very insightful, and it certainly is curious. Here in Canada, Greg, we're about to go through a federal election sometime in the next few months. We should find out maybe soon. We And the way it works here is different than it does there. So uh, thank you very much, brother. It's great to see your face. Always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.